Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Reflections on the Last Things. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 19th, 2017. This is a guest essay by Dr. Ed Rahman. Rahman received his Ph.D. at the University of Munich. After 15 years of church planting and teaching in Europe, he returned to the United States to teach missions and theology, and then he returned to pastoral ministry after converting to Eastern Orthodoxy. He served as director of Holy Transgression Orthodox Church in Raleigh, North Carolina until 2017, and is currently adjunct professor at Duke Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina, and the resident priest at St. Mary and Martha Orthodox Monastery in Wagner, South Carolina. His new book, just out, is called Being the Church, an Eastern Orthodox Understanding of Church Growth, published in the year 2017. Every time we recite the Nicene Creed, we confess that Christ is coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead, that his kingdom shall have no end, that we look for the resurrection of the dead and eternal life in the world to come. It is this teaching concerning the last things that ties together the five readings from the lectionary for this week. These truths call to mind the fact that time is not simply repeating itself, but is moving toward a specific goal, a terminal point, an end, which the scriptures call the day of the Lord. On the one hand, these teachings represent the binding dogmatic convictions of the church, and on the other hand, they serve as a reminder of the living hope that is in the heart of every believer. First of all, dogmatic convictions. Let's begin with a brief reminder of several key doctrinal components of this teaching, namely death, the second coming, and the kingdom. While every human being will die, death is not the end of individual existence, but merely the separation of the soul from the body. The scriptures speak of death in terms of the soul being freed from the body, after which the immortal soul continues to live unto God. Although there is much speculation on the state of the soul immediately after death, the scriptures seem to indicate only two possibilities, a state of blessedness or torment. Although the time of that last day is not and cannot be known, we do know that Christ is coming again. This has been referred to by Jesus himself, by the angels at the ascension, and by various apostles. Moreover, it will come suddenly, invisibly. It will come with power and glory and in judgment of the world. We're also told that the day of the Lord will bring with it a universal judgment. This event is anticipated in so many scriptures as to make it an absolute certainty. After this revelation of God's justice, 
Those so judged will be divided into two groups and rewarded accordingly. The righteous will go into eternal life in the presence of God. The unrighteous will be sent into eternal punishment, a place of fire and torment called Gehenna, according to Matthew chapter 25, 41 and 46. The exact nature of this place is not known. The Orthodox theologian John of Damascus writes that sinners will be given, quote, over to everlasting fire, which will not be a material fire such as we are accustomed to, but a fire such as God might know, end quote. Others have speculated that it might be the deprivation of God's love and glory, which would be a torment more cruel than Gehenna. In any case, these torments will be eternal and unending. When Christ has come and the world is renewed, the kingdom of God will be revealed in all its glory. This kingdom of glory that shall have no end. It will be a life of eternal blessedness as described in Revelation 21. There we read that everything will be immortal and holy. There we, will be com there we will complete our salvific journey and become partakers of the divine nature, participants in that perfect life, knowing and seeing God as do the angels. And there will be no hunger, no thirst, no tears, no suffering, no death. I hath not seen nor ear heard the things which God has prepared for those who love him. This, then, is what we confessed. Christ is coming again. He shall judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom shall have no end. And now a living hope. For these reasons, the whole theology and the whole life of the church is permeated with eschatological hope and the life of Christ. Eschatology is not merely a set of doctrines, not primarily futuristic, not exclusivistically individualistic, but the living and enlivening relationship to the person of Christ, which is the present confession of the whole church. It is not something that is much discussed, but rather something that is lived and experienced in almost every aspect of ecclesial being. This eschatological consciousness is expressed in, among other things, the Church's understanding of salvation, Eucharist, and holiness. First of all, salvation. So it is that Christians understand themselves to be a community of those redeemed by the eschatological saving event of Jesus Christ. Because of his work, the kingdom of God has come near has broken into our reality. This is the salvific awareness of the church, that we have been saved, that we are being saved, and that we will be saved. Life in Christ is, at its very root, eschatological, a living hope that has already dawned, an active anticipation of the fulfillment of the kingdom. The very heart of the Christian Sunday service is the Eucharist, which we celebrate in anticipation 
of the second coming of Christ. In communion, there is a looking back, a remembering of the saving events of Easter. But there is also an active, deliberate looking forward in anticipation of the Lord's return. So the communion connects both the past and the present with the future. It spans heaven and earth. It unites the redeemed with the real and actual presence of the Redeemer. By partaking of the bread and the wine, we are, here and now, united with Christ who is to come. And finally, holiness. The church is the community of the new age. It does not belong to this world, but to God. The church, by virtue of the eschatological act of God and Christ, transcends history and is raised above the realm of social order and human possibilities. So, while the church is a concrete historic reality, it is at the same time rooted in the eternal kingdom of God. This awareness has obvious implications for the way in which the faithful live. The redeemed are called to holiness and separation. They are not to compromise the holiness of the community with idolatry, greed, or immorality. They are to live by a different set of standards, those of the kingdom. Holiness, then, articulates one aspect of the church's eschatological consciousness, namely that it is an entity in history which is essentially supra-historical and otherworldly. That is a guest essay by Dr. Ed Rahman. For books this week, I review a title by Sebastian Junger. It's called Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging. New York, 12, 2016. This book is 168 pages long. If Sebastian Junger's name rings a faint bell in your mind, that could be because of his four previous best-selling books or his work as a contributing editor to Vanity Fair. But I also suspect it's because he was also a co-director with Tim Hetherington of the award-winning documentary film Restrepo. This short book originated with a 2015 article in Vanity Fair. Why is it, asked Junger, that Western society, with all its material wealth and privileges, is such an unappealing place and way to live for so many people? Surrounded by others, we live unconnected lives that can feel deeply and dangerously alone. Our affluence seems to breed isolation. Our high rates of suicide and depression are well known. There are many costs associated with our Western way of life, says Junger, but the most dangerous loss may be community or what he calls a foundational lack of connectedness. We hardly know our neighbors. 
We are made to feel superfluous, if not downright useless. What we lack is a tribe, and thus the title of the book. A place where we are needed and wanted. A place that asks us to sacrifice for one another out of a sense of collective loyalty, responsibility, solidarity, and courage. Your tribe, says Junger, is the people you feel compelled to share the last of your food with. Junger explores all sorts of counterintuitive examples of tribe. Like in the 18th century, where white men, sometimes captive and sometimes voluntarily, rejected so-called civilized society in favor of living with Indian tribes. The worst of times, like natural disasters or times of war, are known to bring out the best of social resilience and bonding in people. Or again, many combat veterans speak of wanting to return to war because of the deep social bonding and the sense of giving themselves to a higher calling of something important. One could argue that Junger romanticizes life in tribal societies to make his point. And isn't it true that oftentimes natural disasters and war bring out the worst in people, like the chaos in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina? There is also a thin line between a healthy tribe and a toxic tribalism. Nonetheless, I appreciated Junger's basic message that we all need a shared sense of humanity, despite our obvious differences, and that in our modern world, that's a rare and precious thing. Once again, Sebastian Junger. The title of his book, Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging. For movies this week, we go back 25 years to 1992. The title of the film, The Betrayal of Technology, a portrait of Jacques Ellul. Yes, this movie is 25 years old, but it still ought to be required viewing for those who care about the single most important feature of contemporary culture which is the domination of technology. Back in 1985, I wrote my dissertation on the French sociologist Jacques Ellul, who lived from 1912 to 1994. He wrote an important trilogy about technology. The subtitle of his 1954 book, The Technological Society, called Technology, quote, the wager of the century, end quote. That is, it's a bet that we have made. In this one-hour documentary film made in Holland, the title refers to the betrayal, the treachery, or the treason of technology. Technology permits no outside judgment. It is a powerful means without any moral ends to constrain it. Technology is no longer a choice, but something that is imposed upon us. In our society, technology is the new sacred, and one dare not desacralize it. Thus, 
Jacques Ellul challenges us to have a radical discussion about our modern life that is dominated by technology. To watch this film, just do a search for the title and you will find numerous online versions. And finally, one quotation from the film by Jacques Ellul. The question now is whether people are prepared or not to realize that they are dominated by technology, and to realize that technology oppresses them, forces them to undertake certain obligations, and conditions them. Their freedom begins when they become conscious of these things. Once again, a film from Holland way back in 1992, it's a documentary. It's called The Betrayal of Technology, a portrait of Jacques Ellul. For poetry, we go back 500 years to William Shakespeare, 1564 to 1660. This is Sonnet 106. When in the chronicle of wasted time I see descriptions of the fairest whites, in beauty making beautiful old rhyme in praise of ladies dead and lovely knights, then in the blazon of sweet beauty's best, of hand, of foot, of lip, of eye, of brow, I see their antique pen would have expressed even such a beauty as you master now. So all their praises are but prophecies of this our time, all you prefiguring. And for they looked but with divining eyes, they had not skill enough your worth to sing, for we, which now behold these present days, had eyes to wonder, but lack tongues to praise. William Shakespeare, Sonnet 106. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, November 19, 2017, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.